Jesus said, if you then who are evil, if even you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Be prepared. Be prepared. It is the Boy Scout motto. The Boy Scout motto. It is uh, driven deep into the minds of those in scouting uh, on every camping trip, at every uh, troop meeting, during every merit badge requirement. Be prepared. I love scouting. I joined as a Tiger Cub Scout when I was in kindergarten where you get to wear a cool little orange shirt. Every time you go on a little adventure, they give you a black paw and you get to iron on. Uh, I then matriculated into Cub Scouts in my local elementary school, and then I went on to the Boy Scout troop at my local church, and eventually I got my Eagle Scout. I started as early as you can, and I went all the way through the end. I love scouting. I love going on camping trips. I love getting to learn how to do stuff, stuff that I never would have imagined. To this day, I can still recite the Scout Oath. I can still uh, recite the Scout Promise. If you give me rope, I can still tie most of the knots I learned. And if, I mean, I wouldn't be very good at it, but if you drop me in the woods, I'd probably be okay for a couple weeks. It might be crazy, but I'd be okay. <laughs> I love scouting. I love every bit of it. Be prepared. When I was in middle school, we were getting ready to go on a camping trip, and we met at the church, and we loaded up everything into the trailer because we were going to head off into the woods. My patrol made sure we had all of our gear and all that sort of stuff. And we had already mapped out what kind of activities we would be doing. We were going to be there Friday night and Saturday night and come home on Sunday morning. So we got to the campsite and it was dark. But we were prepared for that eventuality. So we took our flashlights and we hung them up in trees. And we got our crew tarp set up. And we set up all of our tents and got our sleeping bags put inside. And then it was time to work on dinner. And the adults in our troop were really, really good. They believed that this was something for the boys to learn. And so they had their own area kind of off to the side. We got together, we got our stoves out, we got our water, and then we went to open the cooler. And we were very happy for a moment that the adults were far away, because inside the cooler we discovered that we had no food. <laughs> you see, the boy in our patrol who was responsible for procuring food for that trip had forgotten that it was his job until we got to the church, and then he was so mortified, he decided the best course of action was to not tell anyone that he forgot to get the food. So there we were, a bunch of, you know, teenagers in the middle of the woods, and we have no food. So like the good Boy Scouts we were, we decided the best course of action was to not tell anybody. And to pretend like everything was fine. We took this to a ridiculous degree in the, in the sense that we pretended to cook food that we didn't even have. We climbed around a spoon inside a pot. Mmm, Taylor, this is the best mac and cheese I've ever had in my life. I want some more hot dogs. Can you pass some more over? Oh, we have so much food over here. It's a good thing we were prepared. <laughs> <laughs> On Sunday morning, we got in the cars to drive back to the church. I was in my, uh, my troop leader, my scoutmaster's car, and one of the boys next to me let it slip just about how absolutely famished he was about not after eating after a few days. And our uh, Scoutmaster looked over his shoulder and he said, I hope you boys learned your lesson. We said, yes, we should have been prepared. He said, no, we knew the whole time that you all didn't have any food. You can't make chicken in a minute. We know. We were waiting for you to come. We had plenty of food to share. We always, we're the ones who are prepared. We bring food in case anybody 
never came and asked. He said, there's some things you can't be prepared for. There are some things you can't be prepared for, but you can always, you can always ask for help. You can always ask for help. So the disciples are with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, when are you finally going to teach us to pray? Like John taught his disciples. Can't you just give us the inside track? Can't we just know all we have to do to get saved? And Jesus says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Father, you're great. Do what you need to do. Give us some bread. Forgive us because we're trying to forgive other people and keep us away from evil. That's it. And hopefully you noticed when, when Bob was reading the scripture this morning that it sounded very familiar, but maybe a little different. Its familiarity stems precisely from the fact that this is Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that we say every week in this church. Except when we pray it, we pray Matthew's version. Matthew's version has this nice elevated language. Thine be the glory forever and ever. Luke doesn't have that. Luke, he cuts straight to the chase with what Jesus says to do when you pray. Hey, God, you're great. Thank you. Do what you need to do. Give us some bread. Forgive us. We're trying to forgive people. Keep us away from evil. There's no fuss and there's no muss. And even though it's something we pray every week when we're here together, it's a pretty strange prayer. Particularly when considering how this is what Jesus taught his disciples to do when they wanted to know how to pray because John taught his disciples. John... John the Baptist, he had a different worldview. He had a different paradigm. One in which people could enter into what we might call the program of salvation. There's step one, there's step two, and then there's your reward. You've got to confess your sins, you need to repent from them, you need to engage in acts of uh, you know, piety and mercy, and then you get to go to heaven. In John's worldview, redemption was all about doing the right thing, having the right ethics, having the right morals, having the right politics, in order to make something new happen in the world. But Jesus... Jesus sees things very differently. In fact, to Jesus, the new thing has already happened in him. And it has already happened for everyone. There's no 12-step program to get God to do anything. Jesus doesn't come to just show the disciples a new way. He himself is the new way. This can be frustrating. This can be frustrating for the many of us who want Jesus to just be clear about what we should and shouldn't do. You know, contrary to what we often hear from the church, Jesus does not call for us to be perfect. He simply says the time has come for us to recognize that we are last, that we are lost, that we are least, that we are little, and that we are dead. And we are, all of us. Make no mistake about it, even those of us who look perfectly beautiful and wonderfully happy right now are but shells of people whose real lives are actually pulling at the seams. The disciples, they're people like us, and they want a program. We want it out, laid out nice and clean as to what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to say, what we're supposed to believe. We like those little trite and memorable zingers like do a good turn daily and always be prepared. Then Jesus responds to the disciples' request for a prayer with something that's so simple, perhaps too simple, that it's a prayer in which we don't do much of anything. It's all about God. In fact, if we do anything according to this prayer, is forgive. Which, as we've said nearly every week in this series on parables, forgiveness is something that is really connected with our willingness to die. From the king who forgives the debt of his servant to the father forgiving the prodigal son to cancel someone's debt, to really forgive is only possible for someone who dies to their version of what their life could have been. It's about letting go to embrace something different. The so-called Lord's Prayer, it is, 
a rejection of all of our contemporary understandings of what it means to pray. It doesn't contain these giant and lofty ideals that are so often present in our prayers. There's not a hint of ethical perfection or moral equivocation. It's just about the bare necessities. Lord, we need some bread. We just need to be fed so we can get on to the best part of life, which comes with the realization that we have already died with Christ and we've been made alive with Christ. We haven't even gotten to the parable yet. Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, and then without even being asked, he starts to ramble on with a story. Imagine you have a friend who's at home at midnight, and someone just showed up at your house, and you don't have anything to offer. So you go over to the friend's house, you knock on the door, and your friend says, hey, leave me alone. I'm already in bed. However, even though she brushes you aside, you know that she will eventually give you what you need. What kind of story is that? If you go and ask somebody in the middle of the night for something, they're not going to give you anything. But if you keep knocking, they'll give you what you need. Jesus has his friends imagine that God is like a sleepy friend. Someone who knows the closest thing to death we can know when we're alive, being asleep. And then Jesus has them picture this whole scene in which they break in upon the drowsy God with a battering ram of requests. In other words, the disciples are saying, hey, God, I need you to wake up for me, please. We could, of course, explore why the disciples, why we don't have anything to entertain our untimely friends in the first place, but that will come later. For now, Jesus calls the disciples to see that their sleeping friend is their only hope in the world. That they are a people in need, and the only one who can help them is the one who has something better to do. Stay in bed. And to make matters all the more complicated, the figure of God in the story gives them the cold shoulder. We knock, and God says, hey, I'm trying to sleep here. This is a weird story. It's not the kind of God that we like to imagine in our minds. Don't we all think and believe that God will drop everything for us? Should we only muster up the courage to knock and ask? It's strange. Part of the parable functions in such a way to tell us, particularly with this language of sleeping and rising, that God rises to our prayers out of sleep. God rises to our prayers out of death. But if we were good people... If we were good people, we would be prepared for friends showing up at strange times. We would never need to intrude upon the privacy of someone else in the middle of the night. Many of us, in fact, I think most of us here, would never dare dream of knocking on a friend's door, let alone a neighbor's door in the middle of the night. And why not? Why wouldn't we do that? Because if we did so, it would show how in need we are of other people. And ooh, we hate the idea of needing other people. We hate that idea. We hate it because we've been fed a lie since the time we were kids that we have to get through whatever life is on our own. That we can't trust or expect anyone to do anything for us. Otherwise, we come off looking like beggars who haven't worked hard enough to figure out our lives. And yet, if we were dead to those judgments, most of the time self-inflicted, if we were dead to those judgments, then we really could show up at a friend's house in the middle of the night with nothing more than a confession of, hey, I'm not prepared. And it would be the beautiful admission of our inability to be perfect. And what a joy it would be to know that it's okay to not be perfect. You see, it's being unprepared that would raise us out of a death into something far greater than we could ever imagine. And yet today, more often than not, this prayer, this little parable of Jesus's, it gets whittled down to some version of, you just have to keep asking until God gives it to you. As long as you nag God enough, God will come through with what you need. Which all of us here know is untrue. 
Of course, we should be relentless with our prayers, with our needs. But if that's all Jesus is saying, then all of us are going to be disappointed. We will be disappointed because God does not answer our prayers the more we ask them. Far too many people like me tell people like you that if your prayers aren't answered, it's because you don't have enough faith. Try telling that to the mother whose child has stopped responding to chemotherapy. Try telling that to the husband who has to make the decision of unplugging his wife from the respirator. Tell that to the son who studies night after night but only bringing home D's and F's. This is the most confounding thing about the parable. God rises out of death, out of sleep, not to satisfy our requests, reasonable and unreasonable, but to raise us from our own deaths. Therefore, if we walk away from this thinking that if we just keep praying, then we can con God into giving us what we want or even need, then we have failed to see the gospel for what it is. If we take this story and all of its weirdness for what it's really saying, then we can constantly bring our death to the deathbed of the Lord and we can rejoice. We can rejoice. Jesus ends this particularly parabolic encounter with a statement that we might otherwise rather ignore. He says, if you then who are evil, if even you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I don't know about you, but I don't like being called evil. I don't like it when Jesus calls me evil. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, you, Taylor, even you who are evil, you who can't seem to ever do enough, you who avoid doing the right thing, who hang your head among the wrong thing, you who turn a blind eye toward the relentless injustice of the world, you who believes that everything will get better if you just try harder, you who struggle to be prepared for a world of unpredictability, if even you know what a good gift is, then how much will God give to you? Thanks be to God that the Lord will resurrect us from the death of our own foolishness. There is no greater gift than this. No thing we could ever need in the middle of the night could ever compare with the gift of Christ offered for you and for me. We can't make it through life on our own. And that, dear friends, is why we pray. Not to get something done for us, but to celebrate that the greatest work of all, the greatest thing in the history of the world has already been done for us in spite of us. We can rejoice. We can truly rejoice because we know that we have a friend at midnight. That even in our deaths, that friend is there for us no matter what. We cannot be prepared for everything. You cannot be prepared for everything. But you can always ask for help. Always. And it's, in fact, in asking for help that we are freed. Offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Sadly, we don't ask for help anymore. Very, very rarely. And if we ever do, we immediately feel guilty for doing so. We feel shame for having to ask someone to help us. When I was in seminary, I had to work at Duke University Hospital, and one of my responsibilities was going to patients near the end of life and and helping them in whatever way they needed. Sometimes I prayed for them. Sometimes I read scripture to them. And one day I got a a page on my pager that said, hey, this patient needs to see you. She wants communion. She's about to die. Now, again, I was in seminary. I wasn't ordained yet. I wasn't a pastor yet. I didn't have the, the holy authority to bless communion, but I went and found a piece of white bread and a little bit of grape juice. 
And I went to her room. I had never done it before, but I prayed that God would make a miracle happen and turn this wonder bread into Jesus' body and this grape juice into his blood for this woman. I prayed and I prayed and then I took a piece of the bread. I said, this is Jesus for you. And I put my hand out for her to take it. And she didn't do anything. So I thought at first maybe she just couldn't hear me. So I said, this is Jesus for you. And she said, oh, I can't use my hands anymore. I lost them a while ago. I need you to feed me. So I took the bread and I dipped it in the cup and I placed it into her mouth. And after she received communion, she said, thank you for helping me. We can't be prepared for everything. It's not possible. But we can always, always, always ask for help. So would you please pray with me? Oh Lord, if we're honest, we were never prepared for the gift that you offered us in your son. That to confront the harsh reality of the cross is to admit to ourselves that if it were up to us, we never would have done it this way. We would have given up. We would have abandoned all hope. And yet you have remained steadfast in the midst of our trivial lives. You've looked upon our sins and our shame and have said, it is okay. My love knows no bounds. We are mindful, O oh Lord, that you have done far more for us than we could ever do for ourselves, for one another, or even for you. That our relationship with you is fundamentally one of imbalance. So we could never be prepared for the grace you've offered. And yet we can ask for it again and again and again and again. And so we ask for your grace this day, O oh Lord, to forgive us of all that we've done and all that we've left undone. That we might become a people who can humbly ask for help and a people who can be there to help those who need it. Amen. Thank you.